This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kirsten Ferreri. Dear Enemy by Jean Webster. Part six. J. G. H. April first. Dear Judy, I have placed out Isidore Gutschneider. His new mother is a Swedish woman, fat and smiling, with blue eyes and yellow hair. She chose him out of the whole nursery full of children because he was the brunettest baby there. She has always loved brunettes, but in her most ambitious dreams has never hoped to have one of her own. His name is going to be changed to Oscar Carlson after his new dead uncle. My first trustees' meeting is to occur next Wednesday. I confess that I am not looking forward to it with impatience, especially as an inaugural address by me will be its chief feature. I wish our president were here to back me up, but at least I am sure of one thing. I am never going to adopt the Uriah Heapish attitude toward trustees that characterized Mrs. Lippett's matters. I shall treat first Wednesdays as a pleasant social diversion. My day at home with friends of the asylum gather for discussion and relaxation, and I shall endeavor not to let our pleasures dismode the orphans. You see how I have taken to heart the unhappy experiences of that little Jerusha. Your last letter has arrived, and no suggestion in it of traveling north. Isn't it about time that you were turning your faces back toward Fifth Avenue? Heim is heim biterse heimli. Don't you marvel at the scotch that flows so readily from my pen? Since being acquaint with Sandy, I had gathered a muckle new vocabulary. The dinner gong. I leave you to devote a revivifying half-hour to mutton hash. We eat to live in the John Greer home. Six o'clock. The on sigh has been calling again. He drops in with great frequency, hoping to catch me in delictu. How I do not like that man. He is a pink, fat, puffy old thing, with a pink, fat, puffy soul. I was in a very cheery, optimistic frame of mind before his arrival, but now I shall do nothing but grumble for the rest of the day. He deplores all of the useless innovations that I am endeavoring to introduce, such as a cheerful playroom, pretty clothes, baths, and better food, and fresh air, and play, and fun, and ice cream, and kisses. He says I will fit these children to occupy the position in life that God has called them to occupy. At that my Irish blood came to the surface, and I told him that if God had planned to make all of these one hundred thirteen little children into useless, ignorant, unhappy citizens, that I was going to fool God, that we weren't educating them out of their class in the least. We were educating them into their natural class much more effectively than is done in the average family. We weren't trying to force them into college if they hadn't any brains, as happens with rich men's sons, and we weren't putting them to work at fourteen if they were naturally ambitious, as happens with poor men's sons. We were watching them closely and individually and discovering their level. If our children showed an aptitude to become farm laborers and nursemaids, we were going to teach them to become the best possible farm laborers and nursemaids, and if they showed a tendency to become lawyers, we would turn them into honest, intelligent, open-minded lawyers. He's a lawyer himself, but certainly not an open-minded one. He grunted when I had finished my remarks, and stirred his tea vigorously, whereupon I suggested that perhaps he needed another lump of sugar, and dropped it in, and left him to absorb it. The only way to deal with trustees is with a firm and steady hand. You have to keep them in their places. Oh, my dear, that smudge in the corner was caused by Singapore's black tongue. He's trying to send you an affectionate kiss. Poor Singh thinks he's a lapdog. Isn't it a tragedy when people mistake their vocations? I myself am not always certain that I was born an orphan asylum superintendent. Yours till death, S. McBee.
Superintendent's Office, John Greer Home, April 4th. The Pendleton Family, Palm Beach, Florida. Dear Sir and Madam, I have weathered my first visitor's day, and made the trustees a beautiful speech. Everybody said it was a beautiful speech, even my enemies. Mr. Gordon Halleck's recent visit was exceptionally opportune. I gleaned from him many suggestions as to how to carry an audience. Be funny. I told about Sadie Kate and a few other cherubs that don't know. Keep it concrete and fitted to the intelligence of your audience. I watched the honorable sigh and never said a thing that he couldn't understand. Flatter your hearers. I hinted delicately that all of these new reforms were due to the wisdom and initiative of our peerless trustees. Give it a high moral tone with a dash of pathos. I dwelt upon the parentless condition of these little wards of society, and it was very affecting. My enemy wiped away a tear. Then I fed them up on chocolate and whipped cream and lemonade and tartar sandwiches, and sent them home, expansive and beaming, without any appetite for dinner. I dwell thus at length upon our triumph, in order to create in you a happy frame of mind, before passing to the hideous calamity that so nearly wrecked the occasion. Now follows the dim horror of my tale, and I feel I'm growing gradually pale, for even at this day, though its smell has passed away, when I venture to remember it, I quail. You never heard of our little Tomas Kehoe, did you? I simply haven't featured Tomas, because he requires so much ink and time and vocabulary. He's a spirited lad, and he follows his dad, a mighty hunter old. That sounds like more bad ballads, but it isn't. I made it up as I went along. We can't break Tomas of his inherited predatory instincts. He shoots the chickens with bows and arrows, and lassos the pigs, and plays bullfight with the cows, and, oh, is very destructive. But his crowning villainy occurred an hour before the trustees' meeting, when we wanted to be so clean and sweet and engaging. It seems that he had stolen the rat-trap from the oat-bin, and had set it up in the woodlot, and yesterday morning was so fortunate as to catch a fine big skunk. Singapore was the first to report the discovery. He returned to the house and rolled on the rugs in a frenzy of remorse over his part of the business. While attention was occupied with Sing, Tomas was busily skinning his prey in the seclusion of the woodshed. He buttoned the pelt inside his jacket, conveyed it by a devious route through the length of this building, and concealed it under his bed, where he thought it wouldn't be found. Then he went, per schedule, to the basement to help freeze the ice-cream for our guests. You will notice that we omitted ice-cream from the menu. In the short time that remained, we created all the counter-irritation that was possible. Noah, the negro furnace-man, started smudge-fires at intervals about the grounds. Cook waved a shovelful of burning coffee through the house. Betsy sprinkled the corridors with ammonia. Miss Snaith daintily treated the rugs with violet water. I sent an emergency call to the doctor, who came and mixed a gigantic solution of chloride of lime. But still, above and beneath and through every other odor, the unlaid ghost of Tomas's victim cried for vengeance. The first business that came up at the meeting was whether we should dig a hole and bury not only Tomas, but the whole main building. You can see with what finesse I carried off the shocking event when I tell you that the Honorable Cy went home chuckling over a funny story instead of grumbling at the new superintendent's inability to manage boys. We've our ain bit weird to dree. As ever, S. McBride. The John Greer Home. Friday, likewise Saturday. Dear Judy, Singapore is still living in the carriage-house, and receiving a daily carbolic-scented bath from Tomas Kehoe. I am hoping that some day in the distant future my darling will be fit to return. 
you will be pleased to hear that I have instituted a new method of spending your money. We are henceforth to buy a part of our shoes and dry goods and drugstore comestibles from local shops, not at quite such low prices as the wholesale jobbers give, but still at a discount, and the education that is being thrown in is worth the difference. The reason is this. I have made the discovery that half of my children know nothing of money or its purchasing power. They think that shoes and corneal and red flannel petticoats and mutton stew and gingham shirts just float down from the blue sky. Last week I dropped a new green dollar bill out of my purse, and an eight-year-old urchin picked it up and asked if he could keep that picture of a bird—American eagle in the center. That child had never seen a bill in his life. I began an investigation and discovered that dozens of children in this asylum had never bought anything or ever seen anybody buy anything, and we are planning to turn them out at sixteen into a world governed entirely by the purchasing power of dollars and cents. Good heavens! Just think of it. They are not to lead sheltered lives with somebody eternally looking after them. They've got to know how to get the very most they can out of every penny they can manage to earn. I pondered the question all one night at intervals, and went to the village at nine o'clock the next morning. I held conferences with seven storekeepers, found four open-minded and helpful, and two doubtful, and one actively stupid. I have started with the four dry goods, groceries, shoes, and stationery. In return for somewhat large orders from us, they are to turn themselves and their clerks into teachers for my children, who are to go to the stores, inspect the stocks, and do their own purchasing with real money. For example, Jane needs a spool of blue sewing silk and a yard of elastic. So, two little girls, entrusted with a silver quarter, trot hand in hand to Mr. Meeker's. They match the silk with anxious care and watch the clerk jealously while he measures the elastic, to make sure he doesn't stretch it. Then they bring back six cents change, receive my thanks and praise, and retire to the ranks tingling with a sense of achievement. Isn't it pathetic? Ordinary children of ten or twelve automatically know so many things that our little incubator chicks have never dreamed of. But I have a variety of plans on foot. Just give me time and you'll see. One of these days I'll be turning out some nearly normal youngsters. Later. I've an empty evening ahead, so I'll settle to some further gossip with you. You remember the peanuts that Gordon Halleck sent? Well, I was so gracious when I thanked him that it incited him to fresh effort. He apparently went into a toy shop and placed himself unreservably in the hands of an enterprising clerk. Yesterday two husky expressmen deposited in our front hall a crate full of expensive furry animals built to be consumed by the children of the rich. They are not exactly what I should have purchased had I been the one to disperse such a fortune, but my babies find them very huggable. The chicks are now taking to bed with them lions and elephants and bears and giraffes. I don't know what the psychological effect will be. Do you suppose when they grow up they will all join the circus? Oh, dear me, here is Miss Snaith coming to pay a social call. Good-bye. P.S. The prodigal has returned. He sends his respectful regards and three wags of the tail. The John Greer Home, April 7th. My dear duty, I have just been reading a pamphlet on manual training for girls, and another on the proper diet for institutions, right proportions of proteins, fats, starches, etc. In these days of scientific charity, when every problem has been tabulated, you can run an institution by chart. I don't see how Mrs. Lippett could have made all the mistakes she did, assuming, of course, that she knew how to read. But there is one quite important branch of institutional work that has not been touched upon, and I myself am gathering data. 
Some day I shall issue a pamphlet on the management and control of trustees. I must tell you the joke about my enemy, not the honorable Sy, but my first, my original enemy. He has undertaken a new field of endeavor. He says, quite soberly, everything he does is sober, he has never smiled yet, that he has been watching me closely since my arrival, and though I am untrained and foolish and flippant, he doesn't think that I am really so superficial as I at first appeared. I have an almost masculine ability of grasping the whole of a question and going straight to the point. Aren't men funny? When they want to pay you the greatest compliment in their power, they naively tell you that you have a masculine mind. There is one compliment, incidentally, that I shall never be paying him. I cannot honestly say that he has a quickness of perception almost feminine. So, though Sandy quite plainly sees my faults, still he thinks that some of them may be corrected, and he has determined to carry on my education from the point where college dropped it. A person in my position ought to be well-read in physiology, biology, psychology, sociology, and eugenics. She should know the hereditary effects of insanity, idiocy, and alcohol, should be able to administer the Binet test, and should understand the nervous system of a frog in pursuance whereof he has placed at my disposal his own scientific library of four thousand volumes. He not only fetches in the books he wants me to read, but comes and asks questions to make sure I haven't skipped. We devoted last week to the life and letters of the Duke's family. Margaret, mother of criminals six generations ago, founded a prolific line, and her progeny, mostly in jail, now numbers some twelve hundred. Moral, Watch the children with a bad heredity so carefully that none of them can ever have any excuse for growing up into jukeses. So now, as soon as we have finished our tea, Sandy and I get out the doomsday book and pour over its pages in an anxious search for alcoholic parents. It's a cheerful little game to while away the twilight hour after the day's work is done. Calvi, come home fast and take me out of it. I'm wearying for the sight of you. Sally. End of Part 6